this episode, I'm talking to Federico Pereiro about his post on writing backends. It got a ton of attention on Hacker News and GitHub, and I wanted to chat with him about it. Federico, welcome to Software Sessions. Hello, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. You've talked about how simplicity is very important to you. What does that that mean to you when somebody says software simplicity? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question, and hopefully I won't spend the, an entire hour talking about this. This is definitely <laughs> <laughs> a favorite subject of mine. Simplicity is the way I try to approach all software uh, from all angles. It's always about simplicity. I've been thinking about what it means for me, at least right now. It boils down to two things and the two ideas that I take from different authors. So the first idea is that of uh, conceptual integrity. And I take that from uh, Frederick Brooks, who wrote um, a very famous software development book called uh, The Mythical Month Month in the 60s which I think uh, for many is still like the Bible of software development uh, as, a, as a project, as an enterprise. So basically, Frederick Brooks essentially says that conceptual integrity is, let's say, the core feature of any software system, what he really wants to see in it. And uh, it boils down to having a few concepts that can describe the entire uh, piece of software you're trying to build and how those concepts interlock with each other at different levels of scale. And it's very related to how an architect or a group of architects can really understand the entire system and hold it in their heads. So I feel like that's one side of simplicity that is uh, very important. And if I had to really narrow it down, it would be like the idea that I can understand the system in my head without recourse to paper or even to the code. And then, of course, in the details, I will have to get into the code and uh, to the documentation as well. But... I understand the system and others can understand the system. You know, you're talking about the concepts that you're going to have in your head without even looking at the code, without even looking at, you know, documentation. Could you give me an idea of like if you had an application, what are those concepts? Hmm, it's a good question. <laughs> let me think. I really had to think about this. So, actually let me give you an example from a tool that I'm writing. Right now, mm -hmm. I'm writing um, essentially a lightweight framework for creating the front end of a web application. Mm. And I'm really trying to narrow down the, the core concepts that I'm going to be using. I'm saying that it boils down to two things. It boils down to event listeners, then to events themselves, and then to views. Like For now, I'm thinking that those three concepts essentially can describe all the aspects of the front end of an application to make it a bit more concrete. Let's say you are working on a shopping cart, right? You have the concept of some HTML and CSS that you're looking at the screen. So that's basically the view. The view is HTML and CSS. And then through both event listeners and events themselves, I can model anything like, for example, getting uh, inf product information from the server, adding an item to the card, changing the number of items for a particular thing you have in the card, removing something from the card, sending a transaction to the server saying, hey, I want to buy this. So essentially, I know that the details are going to be perhaps a bit tangled and I'm not going to be able to hold them in my head, but I can understand that the big parts, the big concepts through which I can describe the parts of the system. I don't know if that makes sense. 
Uh, so you have the individual things you're talking about, like you're giving the example mm-hmm. of a shopping cart, adding items, checking out, things like that. And what you're saying is that when you're building the application, you may not know all the individual actions that are going to happen, but you know how you're going to accomplish that. Like you said, like each of those things would be an event, and then you would have you know, these event listeners that would react uh, to each of those actions. So that sort of high level concept, uh, mm-hmm. just knowing that you think is, you know, those concepts that you want to be able to hold in your head. Exactly. And through those concepts that you hold in your head, that would be at the level of the tool itself, right? Uh, if we're talking about a specific code for an application, then the example would have to be different. Uh, I would have to go like one level down if you want in terms of abstraction and say, for example, this Uh, The shopping cart has, (laughs) the concepts would be adding something to the cart, taking it out. I mean, like we would have to go one level down. But the idea Mm -hmm. is that uh, there's a lot of detail in the documentation and in the code, but you can grasp the system at the conceptual level and the conceptual view can take you very far. And the conceptual view gives you the skeleton on which you can put metaphorically the meat of the application on top you can understand and approach the system in in that way. It sounds like knowing those kind of high-level concepts, you should be able to easily go into the code and and find those details you're looking for without needing some kind of design document or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps the design document and the documentation are great complements to it. It gives you the starting point and it also gives you a rope in case you're feeling like you're sinking into the quicksand. Sometimes I really get anxious when I'm like going deep into a code base, even my own mm-hmm. code bases. Yeah. So I really feel like uh, having always the strong concepts that are properly articulated are always mm-hmm. a way to take stock of where I am and just make me able to understand the system in a fraction of the time that it would take me to understand another system that has uh, weak conceptual integrity. Can you give me an example of a, a project where you felt like the complexity was kind of getting out of hand and you you couldn't uh, keep those concepts, you know, all in your head? Not that long ago, I was working uh, with a certain team on a, on a web application and uh, I felt that there was a lack of uh, conceptual integrity in that, I think at the application level, conceptual integrity would mean what are the main entities in our system and how do they interact with each other. The low-hanging fruit of how the entities would work with each other was worked out. But there were a lot of um, interactions between the entities that were not really properly specified. It was actually hard to think about the implications of making a change here. And the implications not even at the software level, but more like an application logic layer. Like, would this make sense if this was possible or not? Should we allow this operation or forbid it? And I felt that uh, there was not enough time devoted to understanding how the, the entities of the system, could, which are essentially the pieces of the system, would interact with each other at an application level. And I, I cannot go more into detail uh, because I don't want to give you like specific details about the company and whatnot. But sure. the feeling was that I didn't have that conceptual integrity. And when I was asking around, uh, the other people that were working on the code before me didn't have it either. And mm-hmm. I felt that was actually hampering the, the efforts into advancing uh, with uh, clear uh, and steps on firm ground, let's say. 
So if I understand correctly, when you would make a change, it wasn't clear what the consequences of that change were. Is that kind of what you're describing? Exactly. You felt uh, also that things were branching out a lot, like the possibilities. Uh, I changed something in an entity and it can affect two or three other entities. It also generated the feeling that you really could not estimate how much a certain task would take because, yes, you could implement the small task, but you didn't know how many new tasks you would create because of that task you already did. Like how much more work you're going to create by the work you just did. I don't mm-hmm. know if that makes sense. So software does tend to expand fractally a lot of the time. And I feel like that's why Fred Brooks insisted so much in conceptual integrity, because if you outline the concepts uh, well, how they articulate with each other, you have much more of an intuition of where the problem areas are going to be and where you are not to expect many surprises. When you would make a change, it wasn't clear where else in the application you would have to also make changes or Mm -hmm. what you might also break elsewhere in the application. Exactly. Uh, How would you sort of properly specify those entities? Would that be a part of just the design process of writing the code or would that be kind of you know, written down somewhere in some form of documentation. What does that look like to you? To me, the idea, if we're talking about the application layer, uh, an application itself, I really like to to think about the entities in terms of the operations you can perform of them, uh, over them. So I guess it's not that different from object-oriented programming, except that I just uh, face it through more of an API paradigm where there's a server listening to get and post requests, essentially. Each entity has a number of routes to get information or to post information, and in some cases to perform other types of operations. So my idea is first to write these basic interactions. uh, Well, I I was going to say on paper, but it's uh, on a text file, right? Mm -hmm. And then the idea is that first you go with with the more obvious things, and then you try to see how certain routes, which I call the interesting routes, which are actions or events or methods, those routes usually lie at the intersection of two or sometimes even three entities. And these are the places where it makes a lot of sense to spend time and and design, to think about the implications, to see how they overlap with each other. And uh, when you have a certain sense of clarity of what's going to happen there, and by no means it's going to be final, then you can actually write some code and write some tests, but you are going to at least understand what are you trying to do, and that's going to inform your first iteration. So a documentation-first approach, but very lightweight. It's like just describing what the endpoint would be doing and then just implementing it, sitting back or perhaps taking a walk uh, around your office or house or perhaps around the block and thinking if those pieces actually make sense and fit with each other. And the other thing is that uh, the 80-20 principle, there's going to be a very few endpoints uh, that are going to represent most of the value of your application. And also, perhaps overlapping, perhaps not, there's a few endpoints that are going to be the hardest ones to write. Uh, so you think about what's important and you think about what's hard. And uh, you pay attention to those areas chiefly. The rest is going to be relatively straightforward. So you sort of start from, you could almost call it like this API first approach where you're figuring out what are all the actions that my uh, application is going to have. 
and you're building out these routes, I guess it sounds like similar to when you have maybe like a, a rest type design. And it seems like you're putting a lot of thought into what are the actions going to be in my application and how are those actions going to interact with all the different entities, which I guess would be either objects or things that you store in your mm-hmm. database. And that's really where everything starts and you try to have all that done before you start writing code. Uh, yes, to a certain extent. I would just uh, write it and say, yeah, I think this should have this shape and whatnot. And perhaps I won't even document the entire shape. What I then do is I start writing the endpoint. And at the top of the endpoint, I write the validations for the payloads that we're going to receive. I try to be pretty thorough with the validation because I find that it's a immensely clarifying of your thought to really think about which inputs are valid and which inputs are not. And uh, not just validation to a shallow extent, but try to deeply validate what an endpoint or what a function actually receives, because uh, that's essentially defining the domain of the function from a mathematical perspective. And, uh, And then from the domain, you say, okay, these are all the possible families of inputs I have for this route for this endpoint, for this function, it's the same thing, at least for me, in this uh, scenario. And then what am I going to do with this? Because if I receive an input that I deem valid, I need to create uh, an output that will also be valid, right? Then the function, if if it receives a valid input, has the responsibility to produce a valid output. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, Yeah. I just document a little bit, then I get into the API, I write the, the validation, And then pretty quickly, you want to write a few tests. First, to make sure that you cannot uh, give invalid input uh, to the endpoint. And then you write a few tests to cover the main use cases for the endpoint. If you're storing a a user, check that the username is at least four characters long. So you can write a test and try to see if you can send an empty username or uh, like an empty string for the username. it's really pedestrian and low level, but uh, that mm-hmm. also takes you to the next step and the next step. And uh, I feel that that approach works well. In, in terms of something like that example, like this username check, is that something that you would typically put into its own uh, endpoint or its own route? Or was that something that you would embed in something that's kind of doing more? Like, for example, if you have an account creation request have that validation in there or would it or would it be separate no the validations i would do it and i would have a sign up route that's how i've been doing it and uh, mm-hmm. the sign up route performs the validation of the username and the password and a few more fields and uh, although perhaps there's a bit of repetition of code uh, here and there uh, not much though I like having the validations for each route uh, written within the route itself at the top and I feel like if the routes are well designed, then the overlap is going to be uh, small. Uh, you might want to define a few helper functions. Like, for example, if you have a lot of places where a user can send you an email field, like a, an email string, then yes, you might have a, a function, which is a helper to, to define what is a valid email or not. And then you can use that in different endpoints. But uh, usually, yes, I write the validation at the top of each route, and uh, that logic is like embedded within the route itself. It sounds like you do testing kind of like outside in. You would make a request to do 
a signup, for example, using an HTTP call mm-hmm. and uh, seeing if the signup, you know, successfully completed, and not necessarily having tests for the individual validations, like for example, that helper function that's going to check, you know, whether an email is valid or something like that. Instead, mm-hmm. you would have that be, I guess, implicitly checked by a more high-level endpoint, right? Yes, yes. To put it in a, in a certain way would be like the proof is in the pudding, right? So like the pudding being the API you expose. So you expose uh, the API, then you should test the API through HTTP. And whatever is embedded within the an API endpoint, whether it is the validations or the results they produce, you should judge them by the results. Besides this, just generating the least amount of code, I think, because if you add unit tests to the end-to-end tests, then it's more code, uh, at least more tests. I feel like it's the real deal in terms of that end-to-end tests test what you are exposing. I feel like to test things that you're not exposing, it's a bit artificial because it can give you a false sense of confidence if the tests are passing. Um, mostly because of that, because perhaps that test is passing as a unit test, but then there's something between the the internal function and the outer parts of the route where there's a bug there that can be triggered by a real request. I just validate what I expose. In the case of applications, I validate through hitting the endpoints. In the case of uh, tools, I just uh, validate by hitting the main functions that I expose in a, in a tool in a library. And uh, the internals are going to be tested implicitly through a coverage of most, if not all of the cases I can think about. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. When you have these end-to-end tests, these tests that are making an HTTP request, testing the full API, do you have any trouble if there is a failure or there is a bug narrowing down where in your code that the actual you know failure is occurring? Oh, great question. Um, this is how I do it and it mostly works for me. So there's, there's a principle called um, auto-activation. It comes from uh, the Toyota production system, which is something a bit weird to be talking about in terms of software. <laughs> but the, these people at Toyota and particularly this, um, I believe, engineer called Taichi Ono, who was the architect of the system, one of the two pillars of the whole system for Toyota and the, the quality revolution within the company, uh, which eventually became, I believe, Six Sigma and other things were derived from there. I, I need to do some fact checking there, probably. <laughs> it was immensely influential. And like one of the two pillars, one of them was just in time. And the other one was auto activation. And auto activation, the name is a bit paradoxical, but the idea is that you have an, aut- an automatic uh, machine processing, for example, a loom with some fabric. So mm-hmm. the machine should be able to detect when there's an issue uh, with the um, incoming uh, fabric or when with the outgoing fabric. And if there's an issue there, whether in the input or in the output, the machine should automatically stop the operation. So the machine stops, and that has two effects. First of all, the machine doesn't produce a faulty output. Like if it detects a faulty output, it stops right there. 
-hmm. Second of all, the operators that are walking around the plant see that there's an abnormal event taking place. So that immediately brings the thing to their attention and they just go to the machine and figure out what's going on. And by figuring out what's going on, they go deep into it. They don't just say, oh, the loom was threadbare, so nah, the machine uh, just gave up because it was uh, too uh, fidgety. No, they try to ask why three or five times until they find the root cause of the problem and then eliminate it. And when I read that, it just blew my mind and I thought this definitely has to be applied to software as well. So the way that I apply it is twofold. From the perspective of tests, whenever a test fails, the whole test suite fails and it stops right there. It doesn't go any further. So any test can be a showstopper. So that already tells you, okay, this particular test failed. Then when I go to the code, that's why I write the validations so thoroughly at the top of each endpoint. And also if I'm writing a, a tool uh, or a library, I write the validations at the top of each uh, function that I expose. So the validations are very detailed in that if something is not right, uh, then the function is going to stop and return you an error message that will tell you exactly what's wrong there in the input. So by doing that, you catch the error as soon as possible from the perspective of the implementation and also from the perspective of the test. So in that way, the errors cannot go very far. You tend to catch them, if not at the root, perhaps one or two steps removed from the root, but not six steps removed from the root. I find that that actually works both conceptually and in practice. Yeah, and so it sounds like you believe most of the, the bugs or the errors or problems are coming in from bad input and bugs that occur kind of further down the line are less common. Considerably less common and also because if you're assuming that something is a string, then <laughs> if you check that it's a string, you're not going to get an, uh, like no such method match because you passed an undefined, right? Which mm -hmm, is a typical mm -hmm. type of error, like a type error. So like this roots out most type errors, but also range errors. And um, when you define quite strictly the, the inputs that you can allow, you start to think about the corner cases immediately, even before you're writing the implementation of the route. You're starting to think, do I really need to pass the username, just to give you a stupid example. Like, perhaps mm -hmm. I don't need to pass the username here. Perhaps it's implied that I don't need it. So when it, it makes you think quite hard about what the endpoint or the function is going to do if you think about the domain of it. So I would say that it forces you to have quite clear thinking already before getting into the implementation of the endpoint itself. And that's perhaps where empirically most of the value is and most of the prevention of the bugs happen. You have all this input validation, this very strong input validation at the API level. Does that mean that further into the application you don't perform much validation because you're very confident that by the time it gets to functions deeper in the application that the data is correct? That is exactly right. <laughs> yes. I try to validate things only once. The exceptions tend to be when you have uh, a, one tool that relies on the next tool, uh, because in those cases you might be doing double validations. But as much mm -hmm. as possible, uh, I really try to validate things once and then uh, never again. 
And I also tend to not use too many layers uh, in the app itself. Like most of the application logic I have within the route itself. Uh, and then perhaps there's a database layer below it, but the database layer should already be tested because it's a tool. So mm -hmm. essentially once that code execution goes past the validations at the top of the route, then yes, whatever happens below has to be a valid output based on the inputs you just gave me. So there's not going to be a nested uh, validation of sorts. That's an interesting point because I've heard talk about sometimes people say like you need to do defensive programming. You know, you, you need to make sure that your, your function is going to be safe regardless of the inputs. But if you're pretty confident because of that strong layer, that can save a lot of, like you said, duplicate code or just more code in general. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're, I, I really love your questions. <laughs> They're really taking me where I want to go, so to speak. So let me just uh, do a, a small fork. I really believe in specifying everything and outlining everything but not doing it twice and not because of performance. Performance is extremely overrated. Everything is so fast nowadays, both software and hardware. It's like, it's so fast. We don't really have to care about it anymore, except in very specific circumstances that you're usually lucky to have because it means you have a very interesting product with a lot of users at the same time. But uh, it's not about performance. It's about adding these extra checks at noise. In, in the eye of the person that is working on the system. This reminds me of a blogger, the name of the blogger, I think is Book of Hook, and he has an article uh, named Suffer No Jankiness. And the idea is that uh, he was commenting on the best coders he worked with, including uh, John Cormack from ID, sorry, Carmack from ID. And mm -hmm. uh, basically, like Carmack would tolerate nothing that was unknown to him. So there was a super small bug and he would like say, no, no, I need to understand exactly what's going on here. I'm not going to tolerate this. Uh, so he would spend uh, one or two days, which for, in terms of John Carmack's would be like someone else's uh, month perhaps in terms of productivity, <laughs> but he would like find the root cause of what was going on there. And going back to what you asked me, I feel like with defensive programming is if you're doing a check twice and you are owning the code, or perhaps a small team is owning the code, that second check you're doing, either you need it and that's the proper place to do it. And if that's not the proper place to do it, do it at the top or wherever it has to be done, or you know that it has been done, so don't do it again. So if you add these defensive layers, you're actually just obfuscating what is coming, uh, you're obfuscating the data flows and you're adding extra code that is going to obfuscate your understanding of, of the code itself. So I feel like that's what, that's the damaging part of it. And uh, this brings me to the tangent that I was talking about and goes back to what I discussed at the beginning. I told you that with simplicity, I saw, first of all, the conceptual integrity concept from Fred Brooks. And there's also uh, another software engineer developer that has been super influential on me. His name is Steve Yegg, Y-E-G-G-E. He used to work at Amazon, at Google, and he had this uh, set of software rants. And like, I love them, I highly recommend them. And uh, one of his rants that really got to me was code's worst enemy. And uh, the basically code's worst enemy is the amount of lines. And he speaks mm. from the experience of him himself working on a game called Wyvern that apparently was very popular. 
and he spent like a decade of his life on this and he realized that the game was too big not just mm. twice as big as he wanted it to be it was like 10 or 100 times bigger than what he wanted to really build and maintain and that was a super painful realization to him and the catalyst for most of his writing and uh, i read that when i was just starting out as a programmer and i became a, <laughs> a fanatic about the reduction of code size uh, in terms of lines and just counting uh, the lines of code, not to the point of doing golfing with the code, but yes, to the point of really questioning the necessity of writing something or not, including, for example, double validations. So mm -hmm. to me, like size is also a metric of simplicity. And the tricky part is not just the size of your tools. It's the size of the combination of your tools and your application logic, because you might have zero lines in your tools because you use, I don't know, vanilla JS or like no frameworks, but then you spend uh, tens of thousands of lines in your application code doing, developing your own tools, kind of ad hocly. Uh, so that would not be an overall approach that reduces um, complexity or lines of code. Uh, you could also go the other way around, which I see a lot, which is we're going to use all the frameworks, you know, all the tools. And so you, our code is going to be super short. So perhaps your code is super short, your application code, but you're relying on hundreds of thousands of, of lines of code. And perhaps even more realistically, you're relying on perhaps 120 functions from 20 different libraries. So the overall amount of code that you have on the system is still very large. You're just hiding it behind the wall of the library or the tool. So I feel that what, I, what I'm trying to achieve in terms of uh, simplicity practically is to reduce or minimize the lines of code from uh, the total lines of code, both in my tools and in the application code itself. Mm -hmm. Do you weigh the lines of code in external dependencies differently? Like when you bring in Express or you bring in Django or Rails, that sort of thing, there can be a lot of code in there. Do you treat it differently than your own code? Yeah, I think you have to, to a certain extent. <laughs> but uh, to what extent to multiply it? Uh, like, I don't know what's the multiplier, really. If you really start going down this train of thought, you go crazy because, for example, I use Node.js, right? So mm -hmm. am I going to count the lines of code in Node.js? Am I going to count the lines of code in, in V8, which is the JavaScript engine on which Node.js mm -hmm. runs? So, or, or the operative system underlying it? So you go crazy. Uh, so the idea is not to take this too far, but I think it really makes sense to put attention into this both in your own code and one level below it, let's say. If you choose to use Rails and you like Rails, then go ahead with Rails and don't go too crazy about the lines of code in Rails. But how many libraries do you use on top of Rails? So for example, mm -hmm. just to talk about what I know, with Node, I really try not to use uh, many libraries at all. Uh, I just have my own set of tools that is relatively small and I understand well. And for some projects I use Express, for some other projects I use seven or 800 line uh, server layer that I wrote myself. And there's not much else there. So mm -hmm. I try to minimize it and perhaps not explicitly count the lines of code in the dependencies, but yes, the amount of dependencies perhaps. 
it's interesting that you know you're using node which is kind of known for this sort of explosion of dependencies right mm -hmm. known for somebody importing an npm package and that package having thousands of lines of code in its own dependencies and so on and so forth mm -hmm. uh, and it seems like you're trying to avoid that, I guess. <laughs> to the utmost extent. <laughs> but uh, again, like I have like, exceptions. I, for example, use the AWS SDK for Node, right? I use it mm -hmm. usually for S3. And that, I think it's uh, 5 megabytes, 10 megabytes of code that I'm importing there. And I don't even want to know what I'm bringing yeah. in there. But at the same time, I feel that I use three or four S3 functions. And then I don't use anything else there. And uh, the rest of my code is unaffected by those dependencies. So I mm -hmm. feel like the impact of that complexity on the rest of my code is much less than if I was importing a lot of code and I was using it all over my application. Yeah, and, and maybe also the confidence you have in that library, right? You're kind of making the assumption that this is a AWS SDK provided by Amazon. It's probably, you know, been very well tested, very reliable. And so hopefully you don't need to understand the internals. Yes, <laughs> you would want to believe that. Uh, yes, uh, and of course, uh, it's a factor in, in, in what you decide. But uh, like, I was always quite suspect of the mainstream libraries. And I feel like time has kind of given me like the right to be paranoid, not super paranoid, but like, yes, careful, like really never take authority at face value, especially coming from big corporations, never, yeah. That's a good point. Actually, specifically with AWS, I think I've heard of their SDK in certain languages is better than others. So you might get lucky or you might you might not. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And in the end, there's always, uh, I would call it the, someone, somewhere, somehow principle, which is like no matter what problems are abstracted to you and you have the ability to use the solution, someone, somewhere, somehow had to implement that solution. And that solution might not be the best solution, it might not even be a good solution. And in the end, you need to find out for yourself. So like you cannot just... Uh, take that at face value. I mean, at certain point you, you do have to, but over time, if you're like developing a skill in a core area, you can question things a bit more and more, not to topple them down, but just to, to understand them more and to just feel whether they are solid and they stand on their own or perhaps they do not. I, I want to go back to how you arrived at the current stack you use today. So that being you know, Node, Nginx, Redis, the local file system. What was sort of the trajectory of, I guess, your software development career where, you know, you settled on those things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say <laughs> it's the result of both uh, being lazy and lucky, let's say. Lazy because most of those technologies I pretty much almost started with. And lucky because I would say that most of those technologies uh, stood the, the test of time, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I started about 10 years ago uh, doing uh, HTML, CSS, and a little bit of JavaScript. So when I started trying to build backends uh, a couple of years after that, uh, I think it was early 2012, I knew JavaScript, I knew a little bit of Python, and I said, is there a way to do a backend in JavaScript? And then Node.js was already around. 
it wasn't mainstream, it wasn't huge, but it was definitely around. It was uh, one or two Google searches away. So I, I just started using it and I absolutely loved it. And uh, I basically stayed with it. And then I never really had a reason to move away from it. Then I had some exposure to Rails. I had some exposure to PHP, but uh, like Node just felt much better or much nicer to me. And uh, I really didn't know why. But eventually with time, I saw certain things that, that, that I really liked about it and I could defend Node versus other options. But really, I was quite lucky in that I just picked Node first and then uh, quite lazy in that I was never really actively thinking, is this the global optimum for me or perhaps there's something better that I have never tried. So that definitely happened to me with Node and it also definitely happened to me with Redis because uh, I never particularly liked uh, MongoDB. I really felt that the, the API was uh, quite complex to understand and I felt it was always changing. And uh, I also didn't like relational databases much. I felt like the, the relational paradigm was quite constraining. Now that I'm, I spent programming a few more years, I, I really understand why it exists and the fact that it's actually wonderful. But at the time I was really <laughs> thinking this is way too complex. I don't understand why anybody would need that. You know, like it was, I was very, very ignorant and very arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but like, I didn't like the relational one and I didn't like NoSQL. I had heard some horror stories from other NoSQL databases and then I just ran into Redis, which is a, a NoSQL database, if you want to call it that. It's, it's essentially a server that is very well written and it implements Data, data structures in memory. So you have lists, hashes, uh, sets, sorted sets, and a few others. And I felt that it was conceptually beautiful. And uh, in practice, it was so easy to get started and just start using it. And at the same time, it could take you very, very far in what you could model with it. And also in terms of uh, the sheer performance of it. And uh, also over time, I was very lucky in that Redis came mainstream, essentially. So people still don't consider it, uh, most people don't consider it as the main database for a project, but now it really became part of the mainstream toolset. And uh, I guess I was lucky that uh, I liked it early on, uh, and then it just basically kept on being valid, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then with regards to Nginx, I started using it because it made HTTPS much easier. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. And as for Ubuntu, uh, I guess it's an easy distribution to install in your computer. I started using Ubuntu back in 2005. And uh, since I was using it on my own computer, it would be nice perhaps that my server also was running the same distribution so I would have to learn less comments. So I guess a, a very lazy approach there too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it seems to have worked so far, right? <laughs> so far, so far. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your usage of, of Redis is a little interesting because a lot of times people think of Redis as something to be used for, for caching mm -hmm. and not necessarily a primary data store. What has been your experience with, with Redis as a primary data store? Do, do you find that you're one of the few people using it, or is there actually like a pretty large community of people who are, are also doing that? I think it's hard to tell. Uh, I definitely feel it's not a majority position to use it as the main data store. 
at the same time, the objections that I find that I hear about it, they don't withstand a conversation with two or three questions going back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the most people's fears about Redis are, I wouldn't say completely unfounded, but they are not well-researched, let's say. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps for a very good reason, people tend to be quite conservative in their choice of database. <laughs> and uh, perhaps because I have such an emphasis on simplicity and a lot of the systems I build, I just built for myself, I tend to value perhaps uh, going with a less conventional approach that is more clear over a more conventional approach that uh, is perhaps conceptually less clear. But uh, there's definitely some people out there that are using Redis for non-trivial tasks that are not just caching, but also involve computation and in some cases even uh, data storage uh, as well. The, I kind of put some details uh, on this in, in a section in the backend lore um, article. So, like, I don't think Redis would be a great database for all types of applications. Like, definitely, if you're handling financial transactions of, or healthcare, you probably want a relational database where each transaction is committed to disk before getting the okay. Like, something that is really complying with the asset guarantees of a database. But for most of the applications I have worked with in my life, Redis seems to be a nice choice. I won't say all of them, but most of them. And Mm -hmm. um, the reason perhaps not many people do it is because they never really consider the possibility of uh, actually doing things uh, in Redis. And the main thing that scares people, and I can understand the scare, but doesn't mean that you have to give in to it, is the fact that Redis runs in memory instead of running in, on the disk. One of the things you, you kind of just mentioned is that if you were working with financial data, you might consider a relational database due to the, you know, the asset guarantees. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there other projects or other scenarios you've, you've found where using a relational database makes more sense, whether that's related to joins or other features of the database? Yes, that's also a good point. Uh, I guess if you're handling a system with uh, millions of records and uh, all those records are deeply interrelated, and this type of scenario is actually what made uh, COD design relational databases, like uh, like working with uh, with large systems, for example, of inventories. Then yes, relational makes a lot of sense because if you are going to implement this in Redis, you would have to create your own indexes. Just to give you a, a, an example, like if you store uh, a million users in in Redis uh, in hashes in Redis hashes. You cannot even say, give me the user that has this email. You have to store uh, a separate collection of emails linking back to the user. So you basically have to do your links yourself in Redis. There's Mm -hmm. a few ways in which you can do that. Actually, efficient ways. You can, for example, use uh, sorted sets to do searches on on ranges where there are alphabetical ranges or uh, numeric ranges, but you need to do the indexes yourself. Whereas uh, in a relational database, you get that, quote unquote, for free. I mean, you get it as part of the standard toolkit of uh, searching and joining. Still, in a relational database, you cannot just search anything. You need to actually know which columns you're going to index. You need to understand how you're going to structure the joins and the foreign keys. So... 
I wouldn't say it's free in a relational database, but it definitely can be easier, especially if you don't know beforehand what types of queries you're going to have to face. So in Redis, you're a bit more hard-coded. You need to add the indexes yourself, whereas in, in a relational database, I feel like you have much more flexibility for on the fly defining new queries on your existing data. It, it sounds like if you have a pretty good idea of what data you're going to have and how you're going to be querying it, then using Redis is um, is not too bad in the sense that you do have to create these indexes, but you can do that as long as you know ahead of time. Whereas if you have, like you said, interrelated data and you're not quite sure what information you're going to want to query by, then using a relational database kind of gets you in a better position to be able to accommodate that with you know less work, I guess, on your part. Definitely. And it's actually very funny to actually reach this conclusion because the reason I started with Redis in the first place is that I felt that it was more flexible. But it's uh, very funny to see that <laughs> actually you do need to know more beforehand if you're designing yeah. with Redis and if you're designing with a relational database. So, <laughs> right. so another part that I thought that was interesting about your your backend post was how you use a local file system or you use a local file system on another server. Mm -hmm. uh, could you kind of explain sort of how you use that and why you do that? Yes, yeah, sure. First of all, I use S3 always now, I would say by default, unless there's a hard requirement or like people really like some people designing the app really don't care about the, 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 the files for more than a few hours, let's say. Other than that, I always use S3 by default. So I really don't have to concern myself with the data durability uh, in mm -hmm. terms of files. That's part of my go-to. With that said, I like serving and holding files locally uh, for a number of reasons. The first of them is speed. If you have uh, the files, whether on the same server as the API you're serving them or in a bit of a bigger architecture, if you have them on a separate server uh, that is still like relatively close to the other one, the speed at which you can serve files, particularly with Node.js, which is extremely performant uh, for doing this type of uh, operation of serving a static file, the performance goes up. And uh, by going up, it means with a small server, you can deal with hundreds, even perhaps thousands of requests per second and mm -hmm. not really have to worry about it that much. Whereas if you have S3, then Node will do the best it can. But because the request might take 20 milliseconds, perhaps 30, there starts to be a lot of queuing there. So performance is one reason. Cost is another one. S3 is cheap for storing data, but it's relatively expensive for retrieving it. If you have potentially, an, I wouldn't say an unlimited amount, but if you don't know how much data is going to be downloaded from your server, then you have an unlimited financial downside of using S3 because it's nine cents a gigabyte. So you get super successful and you get uh, one terabyte, that's 90 bucks. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not the end of the world, but... Uh, <laughs> you don't know how much it is. So if you serve them locally and you can actually do it, then the cost is essentially zero unless you're like a rate limited or like actually if they limit your bandwidth uh, in the server, the, the, the cloud service that you use, which is usually not the case. So I feel like uh, you, you have a big saving there. 
And then the third one, which is only for cases where you store a lot of files. I don't like the way that S3 works with uh, large buckets. The admin of S3 in particular is not very good. Uh, so I feel that sometimes it's nice to have your own FS layer with the own metadata on the files so that you can query your files faster. For example, by username, sorry, not by username, by file name or by the last date modified. So I rather have that information locally and just query it efficiently rather than depend on the query mechanisms that S3 provides me. So are you using the local file system as kind of almost like a cache and then after you store it in the local file system, you'll put it in S3 so that you don't lose it, but the first place you'll go to is the local file system? It would go to the file system and to S3 and unless it's in an S3 successfully, I am not going to consider the transaction successful. So just to be super clear, for example, I'm building an application for uh, managing pictures. So the, I'm uploading a picture from my browser to the server. So the server won't reply with a 200 code unless it, the file is properly stored on S3. Mm. So, but the reads are going to come from the, uh, from the file system directly. And would it be a case of like when somebody is getting their photo back, it would try to go to the local file system first and then only if that failed, you would go out to S3? Yes. I mean, there's three ways you can do it. You can put the stuff only on S3. You can put them on both S3 and the file system and always serve from the file system. Or you can just try to keep the last 10,000 or 100,000 files accessed on the file system, which would be the cache approach. Mm -hmm. And uh, I am lately inclining myself towards the approach where all the files are going to be in the local file system, which creates, of course, the challenge of handling potentially terabytes of files, which would have to be distributed across a number of servers. But I feel like I'd rather deal with that problem than uh, with the problem of having the things only on S3. And when you're doing this local file system approach, I believe in your post you mentioned how you have a separate server that stores these files and then you build some kind of web service layer on top of that. Could you kind of explain like why you took that approach? Sure. The thing is, if you're accessing the local file system, then you definitely don't need a, any layer between the API running on that server and accessing that local file system. But uh, if you need to separate the file system from the API because essentially you have a, a lot of files, then you need to create a communication channel between the, the APIs in Node and the file system on that server. And uh, I, or I wouldn't feel comfortable with any sort of direct file system access through the network. Uh, I remember reading briefly about network file systems and how they were quite brittle or hard to implement. Uh, so I never really went through that path. And instead, I just tried to basically create a separate proper layer that communicates through the network in the same way that the, the front end of an application talks to the, the server, to, the, to an API. I thought the API also has to be able to talk properly to a file system server, like to have a services approach. And uh, avoid the backdoors at all costs. Uh, Steve Yeg also has a, an amazing rant about uh, platforms. And essentially, he basically says that Amazon Web Services evolved from the idea that there should be no backdoors and all services should interact with each other 
as if they were external services. And I think that's beautiful advice because if you have no backdoors, then and there's a lot of security issues you can sidestep. For sure, you also have to think about a lot of other things. You need to think about the authentication between the API node server and this file system server layer. Uh, so you need to solve that problem. But there's not going to be a backdoor. Uh, the communication is going to be done securely over the wire. And uh, that's. I feel like that's really a resilient uh, and scaleful way to see the problem. So in that case, just to sum up this uh, answer, I feel like uh, if you're not going to serve files from your local file system, then you need to treat the file system as a service. And if it's a service, to me, it's an API, and then you're talking through it through, through the wire, and then you're just going to use HTTP, and you can even use the same authentication mechanisms as you would use between the client and the server. That goes into my next question of when do you decide to split something into a separate service? Like, do you have some kind of process that you follow in that decision? Mm -hmm. I would, um, the principle would be let your, your problems dictate your solutions. So, for example, if you have an app and you don't think you're going to have more than 30 or 50 gigabytes of data for the foreseeable future, uh, like you're like way be below that. And uh, you also don't think you're going to go past, I don't know, 2,000, 5,000 requests per second, which is a lot because 1,000 requests per second, I think is 100, requests, 100 million requests per day. So mm -hmm. like, uh, it's amazing to have already that level of traffic. So mm -hmm. unless you really feel you have a lot of traffic or a lot of data, you can go very, very far with just having a single API server serving files from its own file system and then having S3 as a, a backup in case something happens to that server. So you, you can go a long way with that. However, if you start to have either more traffic or more likely more data, then yes, you need to figure out a way to solve the problem of not being able to fit everything on a single server. And so that takes you to the direction of splitting things into services. And definitely having a file service is something that I'm realizing I'm needing. And uh, I have some design work done to that effect, but I haven't implemented yet. So I, I will probably be working on this uh, this year. I have worked with a file service in the past, uh, many years ago. It also worked quite well because, again, we had a significant amount of data and we could not rely having all the data on just a single API uh, server. It sounds like the decision is very much focused on performance. What would you say to the fact that, you know, when you split things up into services, they run on separate machines. So you have to add this additional layer of HTTP traffic, right? You are starting to build a distributed system. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot more network traffic. You have like some additional complexity. How does you, that factor into your decision? Well, it's a, it's a good question because when you start thinking in terms of services, talking through HTTP over the wire, then one incoming uh, HTTP uh, request from a client can become, I wouldn't say dozens, that would be a nightmare, but perhaps five or six HTTP requests mm -hmm. uh, of all your services communicating. For example, the architecture I'm thinking about now, I'm going to need essentially six core services like uh, one for authentication, one for files, 
probably a database as a service as well. That's super tricky. Um, so I still don't, don't want to get too much into detail with that one. And then one for logs, one for server like monitoring, like how's the health of the server, and one for statistics. So there's potentially at least six services running in the background. At least two or three of them are going to be activated by any incoming request on an API. So it's going to require more machines, but in the end, you need more machines. That's why you're setting up services in the first place, right? That's the big reason for which I am thinking of isolating this functionality into its own services, which is I cannot hold everything on one place. So I'm going to split it. So in the end, if you need to split it into several servers, the several servers need to communicate with each other. And then as long as you implement things uh, relatively straightforwardly, I don't think that performance really should be an issue. The main issue there would be to have conceptual integrity again, to understand how that request that comes from the client to the server generates its own sequence of requests. You could say a dance or a conversation among servers on the backend. And uh, I guess that's where the, where the art lies, right? <laughs> In mm-hmm. creating something that is elegant and scalable and understandable and still gets the job done and can scale, I wouldn't say to a big scale, but like for me, I would be, feel very happy if I could say that I can handle, like, let's say, 100 terabytes and, I don't know, uh, 50,000 requests per second. I would be very happy with a system that could do that. So mm-hmm. uh, my, my two requirements would be, well, those on one end and then on the other end, being able to understand what's going on there. Yeah, and more kind of at the service-to-service level without needing to go look into the code or look at the documentation and understand that when this type of request comes in, it's going to get you know, these four or five services. You can know that without needing to, to actually dive into documentation or code. Mm-hmm. Yes, ideally, yes. <laughs> One of the things you mentioned in terms of services you are thinking of creating in the future related to logging and monitoring and things like that. How do you currently handle logging and how do you currently handle monitoring? Uh, right now, for my own uh, apps, which are have very small traffic, I'm taking care of them in a very artisanal sort of way still, or artisanal mm, scale. Yeah. <laughs> I have very bare bones implementations of these services. I have a a centralized log server that is just a, a node server that is listening to requests. And then like uh, the two or three apps I have running are basically sending their logs to that centralized log through the wire. That's essentially how it's working now. And I have a very basic front end to actually query those logs. Um, so that's, that's a very bare bones implementation of a centralized logging service. And mm-hmm. uh, to saner persons listening to this, I would recommend probably use a, a logging service that uh, exists already. You don't have to mm-hmm. roll your own. But uh, I do think that having a, a central place to store your logs is uh, a great time saver. Uh, and also it makes things a bit uh, safer in that if your logging service is storing the stuff to S3, then your logs are not going to be lost on a server restart, restart or if, if your server goes down, you will still have access to, to the logs to the last minute. 
for many reasons, I think it's a very good idea. And also if, because you don't have to be logging in manually through SSH to different servers and seeing what's wrong there, especially in an emergency. The second part of this is the notifications, which are also very crude at this stage. And I'm sure that the logging solutions out there have better ways of doing it, but certain types of logs send emails. And uh, I get those emails and I, I respond to them if I have to. So I have a very crude mechanism, first of all, of centralizing the logs. And second of all, of making certain logs trigger notifications. And despite that being very crude, I think that's going to be pretty much the essential flow of any system. Uh, you need a place to gather things and then you need like some logic that tells you, hey, if this happens, sound the alarm. How do you balance between logging things that you believe are errors or exceptions and still wanting to keep information that's not necessarily an error, but you might need to look back later to help debug something? That's a great question. Uh, before, like years ago, I thought, oh, we can log everything. And I realized that's a bad idea for two reasons. First of all, it's creepy. Uh, you're, you're getting all the full history of what your users are doing. Even if you're not looking at it, I don't think it's morally right to actually do that. I'm not passing judgment on anyone that is doing it because that's a blanket statement. I have to look at the details of what someone else will be doing. So I don't want to offend anyone in that regard because I might not know what they're doing. But at least to the extent that I'm writing my own applications, I really don't want to track everything that a user is doing. Definitely not. I do want to track a few things, however. The second reason I don't want to do that is because the, if you track every transaction and if you have a non-trivial amount of uh, users and traffic, that can easily go into gigabytes and then perhaps terabytes of logs, which are mostly useless. So I feel that it's good to track usually only the abnormal, uh, which is essentially errors, and to track also the outflows without, of course, storing the passwords in plain text, uh, which is very important not to do uh, when you're logging, for example, the request. So basically to recap, I store all the errors and I store all the user flows, taking out, of course, the passwords or the tokens or the, the secrets, let's say, because the outflows are important to understand in the future uh, security issues or like the patterns of attacks that you might experience. And it's also something that is a functionality to the user to see where have I logged in from in the past. So that's valuable information for the user. And on the other hand, errors are uh, going back to what we discussed earlier about this, uh, the machines in Toyota that are auto-activated. When there's an error, you need to take notice and see what's going on. Eventually, there's going to be certain types of errors like uh, there's all the time bots trying to hit uh, vulnerabilities on your app. I get emails from those <laughs> daily and I almost learn to ignore them, but not completely. But I feel that's still valuable information because of the IPs you see there or the patterns you see there. So I might not be in a position to make, do something about that data now, but I might be in a position to do something about that later, perhaps sharing it with others. So I feel that's worth uh, registering. And mm -hmm. um, one more thing that is worth registering, which is a subset of what I said, but when a client has an error, when the JavaScript uh, executing on a browser has an error, 
I send the error itself with as much contextual information as possible to the server, and then the server sends it to the centralized login thing, and then the centralized login thingy sends me an email. So there's a flow from the JavaScript breaking on the on the UI and me and my co-founder getting an email. And I think that's super important and that has helped us detect uh, bugs that we wouldn't have heard of otherwise. Mm-hmm. So basically it sounds like you focus on the JavaScript errors in the front end, any errors on the back end, whether that's mm-hmm. an exception or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the authentication flows because it's like pretty important if somebody can't log in for some reason or somebody's mm-hmm. trying to attack your your application. And then anything more than that, I guess you've changed from before you thought like I need to keep everything because I might need it later to kind of now you're saying, uh, well, probably I won't actually need it, it sounds like. Yes, and what I do sometimes, and that brings me also to the statistic service that I have a bare bones implementation of right now, is that I do, for example, want to track certain metrics because it's fun to track them or because it uh, also gives you a perspective of how much your users are using an app. So, for example, there's ways to track how many unique users you have in a period of time without really having to uh, have a list of which users were active. You can you can add a counter through, a, I think it's a Bloom filter, I can't remember. Uh, you can kind of see if the user was there or not without having to store the username itself. That's a performant and like not non-obtrusive way to detect how many users use your application. And also you can have counters. For example, in the picture application I'm building, I can count how many new pictures are uploaded to the system uh, or how many pictures were rotated, let's say, (laughs) or different operations. Uh, And uh, then you have a counter bound to a period of time. So perhaps in the last hour we had so many uploads and the last day we had so many uploads. So I think that's good to track, but you don't need to know that at this particular moment, this particular user uploaded this particular picture. That I I rather not not have that uh, I, for for these reasons I outlined. You know, you posted this post on how you write backends on Hacker News, and you got a lot of response, a lot of feedback. What are the things that you know people have told you, or the feedback you've received that are things that you're excited to to look into or try in the future? Well, first of all, I was never expecting <laughs> this level of interest. I, I was super happy, overwhelmed, confused. It was a, quite the ride for me. But yeah, it was super positive. And uh, I would say the most valuable feedback I got were further questions. It was amazing how places where I wasn't very clear, uh, someone came and asked. Uh, and they asked me about... Uh, for example, how do I partition databases? How I perform migrations on databases? Or like, do you use sticky sessions uh, to see which request should go to which server? Like specific questions, either through email or through the comments in, in Hacker News or through issues that were great uh, to clarify my thinking and, and start a dialogue uh, with, with many of these people to whom I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful. Uh, so the questions I would say were the best, uh, the best feedback I could get. And then I learned uh, definitely a few things. I didn't know that you could uh, run Redis uh, inside the Amazon Web Services, that Amazon Web Services offer you their own Redis as a service. 
I didn't know that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I should probably be ashamed about that one, but I just didn't know. <laughs> also, someone said, uh, why do you use Node? You can just write all your application logic in Nginx. And I, I just said, no, you cannot. I'm sorry. And that person, and I want to reply that, I, I felt so sure about what I was saying because uh-huh. I was thinking, yeah. who's able to write an application on Nginx configuration? It's impossible. And then that person says, no, you can do it with this tool. And then lo and behold, I went and checked and it's actually possible. And it's actually not that crazy. I think it's called Open Resty. So mm. the idea is that uh, you have a set of Lua modules that extend Nginx configuration and you can mm. do like quite a few things uh, and interact, for example, with SQL databases. And, and I would say, oh, that's crazy. But I just looked a little bit more and it looks pretty elegant. And actually Lua, I had a very pleasant experience working with because it's the language for performing uh, like programmatic Redis transactions. So in the end, I was absolutely wrong and I learned something new there. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that was amazing. Then, yeah, I got a few suggestions about alternative things. I definitely got some validation from people that said, definitely I've been doing also this for a while and I use a similar um, approach and this has worked for me, which for me was a relief because I, like, especially getting all that exposure, like saying perhaps I'm just saying, uh, stupid things and a lot of people that know better are silent uh, <laughs> so to at least have some validation is is nice and then in terms of uh, particularly going off the deep end I had um, a few doubts about how to implement CSRF um, which are uh, cross-site uh, request forgery tokens whether they were needed or not and uh, the last couple of days I have been involved in a great discussion both in Hacker News and in an issue in the, in the repository or in the document in GitHub about uh, how to implement them, whether they're necessary or not. So the feedback there has been amazing and I'm still like going through it. But yeah, I'm definitely learning a lot about very specific topics where I had like, a, let's say, the fog of war or some just uh, unknowns there. And um, it's really helping me clarify my thinking. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. It's great that you know you shared your experience, but then also you know we can get the experience of the internet as a whole. It was absolutely beautiful, and <laughs> I wasn't expecting it again. It was something I felt like I just had to put down, pretty much for my own future reference. And it was just mm-hmm. beautiful to see how it evolved, and, and and people took it into their own hands. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're we're gonna start wrapping up, but before mm-hmm. we do, is there anything that you'd like to to mention or or think you know that I should have asked or? Yeah, a piece of advice that perhaps I would just uh, probably have to put on the back end lore is that one very important piece of knowledge I learned there is to never normalize errors or alerts. So like when you're used to getting emails uh, that something is failing and it's uh, the boy that cried wolf, then mm-hmm. at some point when the wolf comes, you're going to be way less responsive. It's super important to either not get the, the alerts if you shouldn't be getting them, like solve perhaps the, those low-level problems or turn off those particular alerts or at the very least have a hierarchy of errors and notifications mm-hmm. because you really want to know when something is off. And that brings me back to the concept of auto-activation there. It's really important to never normalize the, oh yes, this this stupid thing is failing again and it's not my responsibility because uh, perhaps it's something else this time and this time it's your responsibility. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you want to know that as soon as possible. I, I understand that that feeling well of like, 
expecting certain errors to happen and having to have this sort of heuristic, you know, in your mind of like, okay, does does this error matter or not? And I, that just kind of wastes a lot of mental energy. Mm-hmm. It does. It does, and it really like, uh, yeah, it's dangerous. Uh, I mean, most of the time it's uh, just trivial, but uh, if you're dealing with systems and you're responsible for them, it's it's downright dangerous. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely good advice. For people who want to check out your post or check out what you're working on at your company, uh, where should they head? So the name of my company is AltoCode, and uh, we actually are building our software in, in public, which is we're putting it in GitHub and it's open sourced. And uh, while we are hoping to charge uh, for the service, we are still giving away the software for free. And uh, we are putting all our best practices into the code itself. So the pictures application I was mentioning, the name of it is uh, ACPIC. And uh, it's open source, and like in the like all the practices that I mentioned in backend lore, all the practices are there implemented in actual functioning code uh, on the repository. So that's a let's say a live example of uh, of these practices, and and you can just uh, check it out in GitHub. I can of course send you the the link uh, later. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so that's that's a place to to look for for the code itself. And I'm super open to to feedback and questions and uh, yeah, people pointing also factual errors. It's all very welcome. Cool. Federico, thank you so much for joining me on Software Sessions. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Federico for coming on the show. You can get show notes for this episode at softwaresessions.com. If you haven't seen Federico's post on writing backends, you've got a link to it in the show notes. Okay, I'll see you next time.